Please open your Bibles to John chapter 2, 23 to 25. And if you're using a pew Bible, the page number is 72. Hear the word of the Lord. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, during the feast, many believed in his name. When they saw his signs, which he was doing, but Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them. For he knew all men, and because he had no need that anyone bear witness concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. This is the word of the Lord. Father, thank you for your great love. Father, I thank you for every way that you express the greatness and the magnitude of your love towards us, not only as your creatures enjoying your world, but as your children redeemed in Christ. Lord, we thank you for that marvelous, infinite, matchless grace. That grace that comes freely from you at the cost of your Son. Grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Lord, we know in our own hearts and minds the many sins that we have committed against you. Not all of them, but there are sins that stand out. Lord, we so often feel guilt rightly over sins committed in the present, but wrongly over sins committed in the past which you have already forgiven. Lord, we're so aware of our fallenness in so many ways. You've made us as your children. You've made us aware of our fallenness before you. Not maniacally, or not, not in some sadistic way, but you've made us aware of how deeply fallen and flawed we are so that we would recognize more fully how great, how high, how deep, how wide, how all-encompassing your grace really is. God, please don't let us shortchange ourselves in our perspective and assurance of the great riches of your grace that are ours in Christ Jesus. God, please awaken us this morning to sense and to know the greatness of your loving kindness, the greatness of your compassion and mercy, the greatness of your grace that is ours in Christ. You've given us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in him, Lord. You've chosen us in him from before the foundation of the world while we were still enemies Christ died for us. You demonstrate your love for us, Lord, that even while we were walking in defiance of your holy will, you gave your Son to save us. 
You chose us in him, Lord, that you might predestine us to adoption as sons and present us to yourself holy and without blemish in your sight. Lord, that is indeed marvelous, infinite, matchless grace. I pray we would come to know it more fully this morning as those who call upon your name, those who claim salvation in your beloved Son, those who profess faith in the name of your beloved. Lord, please awaken us to the great riches of his glory and the great riches of grace we have in him. Father, we pray for those who are not among us, those who are traveling, those who might be sick, for other various reasons are not able to join us, not able to come into the corporate gathering of your people this morning. We pray that you would bless them or that you would strengthen them in the faith, that you would encourage them where they are, that you would lead and guide them as their great shepherd. And Lord, that even in that, they would still find their own hearts dissatisfied with the fellowship with you until they can be restored and return to the fellowship of you with your people. Father, we pray for your nearness this morning. We pray that we would recognize it, that we would be awakened to your greatness, that our faith and assurance of salvation in Christ would be increased, and that we would come to your table this morning as a body, rightly and truly worshiping you. Father, we thank you for the sacrifice of your Son. We pray that for his sake you would bless and anoint the preaching of your word this morning. Or would you keep me from saying anything unhelpful? Enable me by your spirit to speak as those speaking the oracles of God. Let your people hear your word and accomplish your will this morning. We pray in Jesus' name, Father. Amen. Amen. Well, to the, the title for today's sermon is The Faith That Jesus Trusts. The Faith That Jesus Trusts. We don't often think about Jesus trusting in us. In fact, very often the slant that that would carry with it would be something that would be blasphemous in the way that most people would think about that. But in our passage today, we do find Jesus trusting or not trusting himself into the hands of others. And it has everything to do with the kind of faith that they had. As we've said before in our study of the Gospel of John, faith in Jesus is the main goal of this Gospel. What the Apostle John, moved by the Holy Spirit, is driving at is the conviction, solid conviction of faith in the hearts of every sinner that would read this book. That each one of us would, become, would come to the point where we would see that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God, and that by believing in Him, we would have life in His name. That's John 20, verse 31. The intention, in other words, of everything that's written in this book is to communicate to us the truth about Jesus in such a way that we are moved to believe in Him. 
In fact, the Gospel of John opens with this same theme in John chapter 1, verse 12, where we find that as many as received Jesus, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believed on his name. Believing in his name was the means by which they came to receive the blessing of being his children. And so everything in this gospel from beginning to end is aiming to drive every reader into true and saving faith in Jesus as the Messiah, as God's beloved son. Now that's why, in light of that, that's why what we find here in John chapter 2, verses 23 through 25 is so surprising. Because here we are told of a group of people who are described as those who believe. There are a a group of people, in fact, John says there are many in Jerusalem during the Passover feast who came to believe in Jesus. And yet, verse 24 tells us that rather than welcoming them, we actually find Jesus withdrawing from them. So if the point of the book is to drive people to faith, and here we find a group of people described as those who believed in Jesus, those who had a faith in Jesus, then what is Jesus doing withdrawing from them? Why does he do that? Is this not the same Jesus who in John chapter 6 will say that no one who comes to him will ever be cast out? Isn't that exactly what Jesus is doing with these sinners who are said to believe in him? Is he not casting them out by withdrawing from them, holding himself in reserve from them? Well, this leads us, uh, well, excuse me, this is actually one of the most crucial sections of the Gospel of John to understand. Because it reveals a vital truth to us and a truth that can make us very uncomfortable. This section in the Gospel of John tells us that Jesus knows that not everyone who has faith in him actually has saving faith in him. Not everyone who would be categorized as a believer in Jesus is in fact a true believer in Jesus. What we learn here is that there is a kind of faith that is not saving faith. There is a kind of faith that is even in some way directed towards Christ that Christ himself does not accept or approve of. It's a false faith, a faith that comes short of truly believing in Christ for salvation. Now that can make us very uncomfortable, can it? The reality that you can profess faith in Jesus Christ and all the while not have true saving faith in him? It's because of that reality that we find multiple warnings in Scripture that call everyone who professes faith in Jesus to examine that faith to see if it actually is legitimate. So, for example, 2 Corinthians 13.5, we read of the Apostle Paul exhorting the believers in Corinth, test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves, he emphasizes. Or do you not know this about yourself, that Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test? See, the fact that a statement like this appears in Scripture ought to make our spiritual ears perk up. 
because it proves that it is possible for those who belong to the church and those who claim to believe in Christ to have the kind of faith that does not include Christ actually being in them. Test yourselves, examine yourselves to see if you are in the faith, or do you not know this about yourselves, that Christ is in you? Christ being in you, for Paul, is definitional of what it means to have true saving faith. So test yourselves to see if your kind of faith is a faith that can actually be described as Christ being in you. There's a kind of faith that owns something about Christ to be true. But in reality, does not find that Christ himself will own it. Today we are being brought, to face, being brought face to face with that reality in the Gospel of John. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look together at John chapter 2, verses 23 through 25, and consider... What this, what this passage says about the false faith that these many people in Jerusalem had in Jesus. And as we do so, we're going to try to examine our own hearts to make sure that the faith we profess to have in Jesus is a true faith, is a saving faith, to make sure that our faith is not like their faith. Now let me pause here for just a moment. One of the challenges in preaching a sermon like this is really that there are four possible outcomes. One, the sermon could fall flat on its face and accomplish nothing. And I pray that's not the case. Two, the sermon could cause true believers who have genuine faith in Christ to doubt their faith. And I pray that's not the case as well. No true believer in here needs to be brought to the point where they are doubting their faith. But let me exhort you and encourage you to question whether or not you have true saving faith is not a bad thing. It's actually a good thing. In fact, I would say that those who never question their faith in Jesus Christ, those are the, one, those are the ones I'm more concerned about. Because what they're showing me is that they don't, they're not increasing in their understanding of how sinful they really are. They're not coming to that point of conflict where they realize how much darkness is still within them and feeling that struggle of the soul to know, Lord, I'm seeing more and more of my sin in me. How in the world could you possibly accept me now? I'm worse now than I was 20 years ago. A believer who's struggling like that gives me far more confidence that they've been brought to saving faith in Christ than someone who never ever has that struggle. So I don't want true believers to be brought to the point where they're doubting their salvation this morning. However, a third possibility is that false believers will continue with false assurance in their false faith. And I pray that that will not be the case either. This section in John is written here to guard us against falling prey to the reality of a false faith. And if you don't genuinely look into the mirror of this passage and consider your own profession of faith and wonder if it's really legitimate, then you're not helping yourself spiritually at all. It's hard to preach a sermon like this because I can come across challenging 
Like I've got a baseball bat, I'm going to whack you upside the head with it. That's not my intention this morning. But if I did not do everything I could to bring you face to face with the reality that we see here in this passage, then I am not being a faithful servant of Christ and I am not being a loving shepherd to you. The fourth possibility is that there are those among us who have false faith and by God's grace today they will be awakened to true and saving faith in Jesus Christ to finally have the kind of faith that Jesus trusts. That's my prayer, and I would ask that you would pray for that end as well. Now, as we do, as we look into this passage today, there are two main thoughts we're going to be digging into. One is the characteristic of false faith, or excuse me, the character of false faith. There are two characteristics to that I want to point out that we see here. The second main point is Jesus' response to false faith. So the character of false faith and Jesus' response to false faith. So the first thing we're going to look at is the character of false faith. And there are two characteristics I want to point out here. The first one is very brief. I don't have time to unpack it as much as I would like to. But the first characteristic of false faith is this. False faith, according to this passage, can exist even where there is a lot of religious activity. False faith can exist even where there is a lot of religious activity. Verse 23 says that these many in Jerusalem, when they, they saw the signs which Jesus was doing and they believed on his name, when they were in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast. So what's happening here? There's a great religious celebration that they're all participating in. Some of these Jews have traveled hundreds of miles in order to be here in Jerusalem to celebrate the memory of God's grace through the Passover. They've made sacrifice. They've gone on quite a journey to be here. And yet their response to God's Messiah proves the nature of their faith in God himself. John is making this clear in the way he writes this verse that it is in the context of great religious zeal and ceremony that the false profession of faith in these people rises up. In the place and at the time where genuine faith in God and in His Messiah would have been expected, that is where God the Son only finds the shell and the shadow of genuine faith. And as I said, I don't have time to go into this very much, but just the general rule for us to keep in mind there is that false faith will always be most present in context where religion is most abundant. False faith will always be present in context where religion is most abundant. Boy, how many people think they're right with God because they went to church every Sunday. How many people think that they're right with God because they faithfully paid their tithes and they were baptized in Jesus' name? And they convinced everyone around them that they were true believers and they were welcomed into the membership of the church. And they even prayed and they read their Bibles. They even did good to their neighbors. Everyone around them would have said they were true believers. And yet how many people on the day of judgment will hear Jesus say to them, depart from me, I never knew you. 
Many, many people go to hell from the church pew or the pulpit. And we have to be on guard against this. Just being a member of the church and being an active participant in the church's worship even, and even participating in private exercises of devotions, none of that proves that you have genuine faith in Jesus the Messiah. It's just a reality. Many people have a heart for religion, but they don't have a heart for Christ. We need to be on guard against that. False faith can exist even where there is a lot of religious activity. And let me give a, just a condition there. Here's a parenthesis that I don't have time to launch into at all, but if you are beginning to evaluate your own faith and you're beginning to ask yourself, am I a true believer? Am I a, a person who has genuine faith that Jesus will entrust himself to? You don't start by asking, what kind of activities am I doing? You don't start by asking what kind of fruit is being brought forth in my life as far as praying, as far as being in the Word, as far as being in church, as far as evangelizing the lost, as far as being a good moral person. You don't start looking for genuine faith by looking at external fruit. You start evaluating your faith by discerning what's really going on on the inside in your relationship with Christ. And from there, you move outward to the fruit. I can talk about that more if any of you want to discuss that more fully with me. So false faith can exist even where there is a lot of religious activity. Number two, verse 23 goes on to identify the main characteristic of false faith. And that is that false faith is the kind of faith that rests upon signs. And we might even replace the word signs there with events. It's the kind of faith that rests upon signs or rests upon spectacular events. Verse 23, John makes explicit what made these people in Jerusalem confess a measure of faith in Jesus. It says that they believed when they saw the signs that Jesus was doing. In other words, their faith was a sign-based faith. Their faith was based upon signs. Well, some might say, now just wait a minute. According to John chapter 20, verses 30 through 31, isn't that what signs are for? Aren't signs intended to bring us to faith? Aren't we supposed to believe in response to the signs that Jesus did? Isn't that what John says here? There were many other signs that Jesus did, but these, these signs have been written so that you would come to know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you'd have life in his name. Aren't signs intended to bring us to faith in Christ? Well, here is where the Holy Spirit gives us one of the major indicators of a false faith. Signs are not in and of themselves enough to bring us to saving faith in Jesus. The only way we come to saving faith in Jesus is if we see through the signs and behold Christ in his glory. Signs are like a sign. They're pointing out something. These miracles were designed to teach us something about Christ. And if you never move beyond the miracle to see the truth about Jesus, then your faith is being misdirected and misplaced. 
Here the Holy Spirit gives us one of the major indicators of false faith. A false faith will rest upon what Jesus does and not upon who Jesus is. A false faith will rest upon the spectacular things Jesus does and not upon who Jesus in himself truly is. And you can't press that too far. But when it comes to signs, that applies. The interest of these Jews in Jerusalem, their interest in Jesus was nothing more than Herod's interest in Jesus. Remember when Jesus was brought before Herod for trial? Pilate sent Jesus to him, and in Luke 23, 8, we read that when Herod saw Jesus, he rejoiced greatly, for he had wanted to see Jesus for a long time because he had been hearing about him and was hoping to see some sign performed by him. Now notice there what Herod was not rejoicing in. He was not rejoicing in the opportunity to converse with Jesus. He was not rejoicing in the opportunity to truly come to understand who Jesus is and what his message was really about. He was interested in Jesus as a miracle worker, as someone who could wow him with another sign. Jesus, do this and show me these great things I've been hearing about you, Jesus. Do that for me too. Let me see you do it. It's like Simon Magus right? Acts 8. This great power that you have in the Spirit, I want that power too. How much money can I give you for it, right? That kind of faith, that kind of interest in Christ is what these Jews in Jerusalem were about. They were excited and they were rejoicing and they were confessing faith in Jesus, not because they were impressed by Jesus himself, but because they were impressed by the miraculous things Jesus could do. It's the same kind of faith that Jesus' brothers were after in John 7, verses 3 through 5. They wanted Jesus to go into Judea, for, as they reasoned, no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, if you do these signs and miracles, then show yourself publicly to the world. And you see what they want him to do. They want him to put his power on display. They want him to make a name for himself in the world and to do great things so that he would gain a massive following. It's really easy to fall into that trap. I think very often we can do the same thing where we think about the world around us and we think about the fact that the faith doesn't seem to be spreading in our country. We think to ourselves, Lord, if you would just do some amazing things in this world, then the world would see who you are and they would believe in you. Well, notice in verse 5 of John 7 where that kind of desire comes from. That desire does not spring forth from true faith. It springs forth from unbelief. As this verse says, even his brothers, in telling him to do this, they were asking him to do this because they were not believing in him. Now, you see the connection there. There's a connection between being a sign seeker and not having true faith. A sign seeker, being a sign seeker is among the greatest evidences that a person does not have true saving faith. That kind of faith that only seeks after signs and is only built up by signs and miracles is a shallow, fickle, and unstable faith that does not endure. It only lasts so long as the signs and the miracles continue. And once those signs and wonders and miracles stop, then the faith of the sign seeker dries up. Now, by way of application, 
you know that this kind of faith is not limited to those who are seeking after extraordinary signs. At the heart of the kind of faith that seeks after signs is simply the desire to seek Jesus because of what you can get out of him. In essence, sign-driven faith is the same as event-driven faith. Both are focused on what Jesus can do or what Jesus has done for me. So, for example, and these are all real examples that I've drawn from people I've interacted with out on the street. I'm not making these up. I follow Jesus because he paid my bills for me last month. I follow Jesus because he gave me a house. I follow Jesus because he provided for me a car. I believe in Jesus because he gave me that job I was wanting. I believe in Jesus because he gives me food and clothing. I follow Jesus because he gives me joy and he gives me happiness and success and good health and a comfortable, blessed life. I follow Jesus because he makes me feel good about myself. In other words, I follow him because I have seen him provide all of these things for me. Now listen, all of these are good reasons to praise Jesus and to give thanks to him for being so kind to you. But none of those are sufficient to build your faith upon. What if, in his sovereignty, Jesus chooses to take all of those blessings away from you? What happens to your faith then if your faith was built upon those blessings? Well, I know Jesus loves me because I've got a house. I know Jesus loves me and he's for me because I got married to a wonderful person. I know Jesus loves me and cares about me because he gave me a great job. My bank account is full. My refrigerator has food. What if Jesus strips all those things away from you? If your understanding and your conception, if your belief in the love of Jesus is defined by the things that Jesus has given you, those physical, material blessings, then what happens when all those physical, material blessings are gone? Jesus loves me because I don't have cancer. Jesus loves me. I'm out of healthy weight. What happens when you get fat? Does he not love you anymore? I hope not. I'm 60 pounds up from when Jamie married me. I'm glad her love of me is not so shallow that she has left. What if Christ ordains you for you to lose that house that he gave you? What if it's in his will and in his purpose for you to be impoverished? What if that is how you are going to learn how best to glorify God? By having nothing. What if he doesn't give you that spouse that you're hoping for? Or what if he takes that spouse away that he gave you? What about when you walk through a season when you don't have joy in him? And you're walking in the darkness and you cannot see the light. Isaiah 50 verse 10. What if God ordains that you, rather than having a refrigerator full of food, die of starvation? 
or what if he ordains that you lose your health? Is if your faith is based upon all of God's gifts and physical blessings that he pours upon you in this world, what will be strong enough to make you continue in the faith when all of those things are stripped away? No, the only way that faith can stand firm through times of trial is if your faith is resting in something that the trials themselves cannot touch. In fact, I would say that's what trials are designed to do for us. Trials and suffering and hardship and the pain that we experience as we live life in this world, all they are designed to do is to cut out the pillars that we're resting on that are anything other than God. They're to shake us up. They're to make us feel uneasy so that we begin moving away from the things that are going to be shaken on the last day and finally put ourselves in the hands of one who cannot be shaken. God ordains trial and suffering to come upon us so that we would be urged more forcefully to put our faith and hope in God and not in God's good gifts. Remember Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 2. This is what God said he was doing with the Israelites in the wilderness. He said, you shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years so that he might humble you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. There was a testing, there was a trial that the Lord was accomplishing in bringing the people of Israel into hardship. He let them starve. He gave them only bread. He didn't let them have new clothes and, 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 and leeks and onions by the Nile anymore. He stripped them away of all the excess so that he could find out what was genuine about their heart or at least so that he could reveal it. My friend, if God were to so humble you, what would he find in your heart? If he removed all of those physical blessings that he's given you, would he find your faith still resting firm in him? Not without challenge, not without struggle, but truly and genuinely being directed towards him. Or we're reminded of Job, right? In Job chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. After God draws attention to Job's faithfulness, Satan says to God, does Job fear you without cause? Does he fear you for nothing? He doesn't serve you for nothing. Look what you've done for him. Verse 10, have you not made a hedge about him? Have you, haven't you given him a house that's, that's comfortable and safe? And haven't you protected all that he has and on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands, and you've given him possessions. They've increased in the land. The only reason why Job serves you is because you've done all of these things for him. But do this, God. Set your hand against those possessions, and then you will see what's true about Job. I guarantee you, he will curse you to your face. I wonder if God allowed that to happen to us, what would that show about the nature of our faith in him? or the depth of our commitment to him. That kind of superficial faith that the devil accused Job of having is in essence the same kind of faith that these Jews in John chapter 2 had in Jesus. <clears throat> it was a superficial faith that was resting on signs and miracles and what Jesus had done rather than resting in Christ himself. Now in the rest of our time this morning, I want to consider how Jesus responds to this false faith. 
How does Jesus respond to this kind of faith? Well, number one, he does not welcome it. Instead, he withdraws from it. He does not welcome it. He withdraws from it. Verse 23, many believed on his name when they saw the signs which he was doing. But, verse 24, Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them. Very interesting wording here. In Greek, that word for entrust, when it says Jesus was not entrusting himself to them, that's the same word that's in verse 23 for believed. The people believed in him. Jesus was not entrusting himself to them. Those are the exact same words in Greek. Just different, different case ending. In other words, even though there were many who believed in Jesus, Jesus was not believing or entrusting himself to them. Why was he not doing that? Well, verse 4, verse 24 says, he was not doing that because he knew all men. You could translate that as he knew everyone. He knew who they really were. He knew what was true of them underneath their outward profession. He knew who they were in the secret place of their hearts. As verse 25 says, he himself knew what was in man. In other words, Jesus, when he looked upon these Jews, he knew what was truly motivating their faith in him. And it wasn't a clear perception of him and his glory. It was an intrigue and an interest in what Jesus could do for them. That was at the heart of their faith. He knew that they were not believing in him out of a genuine desire to love God or to know his ways or to bow in humble submission to his Messiah. They were merely seeking Jesus for what they could get out of Jesus. And we see that very thing manifest in John chapter 6. When Jesus multiplies bread for the 5,000, when he feeds him, it says in verse 14, therefore when the people saw the sign which Jesus had done, they were saying, this truly is the prophet who has come into the world. Now that's a profession of faith. They're saying of Jesus, this really is the one that Moses wrote about. This is the one we've been waiting for. Look at this miracle he did. So Jesus, in verse 15, what does he do in response to that profession of faith, that confession of who he is? And let me, let, me, let, me, let me state this. Their confession of Jesus was not wrong here. He is the prophet that Moses wrote about. But what does Jesus do? How does he respond to that confession of faith? So Jesus, knowing that they were going to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. Jesus would not affirm them in that confession of who he was. He withdrew from them. Now the people chased him down. They crossed the lake overnight. They found him the next morning. Shows pretty serious devotion on their part to Jesus, more than what most professing Christians today would show. But in verse 26, when they finally found him, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. In other words, you're only seeking me because I gave you something that you wanted. I satisfied your bellies. I placated your idol. I served your desires. That's why you're seeking me. You're not seeking me because you saw a sign and you understand what it means. You're seeking me for what you can get out of me. 
Well, that's exactly what was going on here in John 2. Jesus would not entrust himself to these people because he knew what they were after. They were not genuinely after him. They were seeking after his miracles. You know, just application here before we move into the next point. Jesus knows what's true about you even when you don't know what's true about yourself. These worshipers who believed in Jesus in John, in John chapter 2, I would be willing to bet that none of them had a thought, even an inkling, that their faith was evaluated by God as being false. Jesus knows what's true about you, even when you don't know what's true about you. More than that, Jesus knows what's true about you in light of the things you do know to be true about you. He doesn't need the rest of the church to give profession or, or, or statement about your character or the reality of your faith to know whether or not you truly are a believer. On the day of judgment, Jesus is not going to be looking at me to ask me about Jamie in regard to the reality of her faith. Jesus is going to be dealing with her by herself. Jesus knows what is true about you, what is true about me, and he interacts with us based upon what he knows to be true about us. You know, the, uh, the thing about people who want to be your friend only because of the stuff that you can get for them what happens to those friends when the stuff runs out and you can no longer give them what they want? Uh, they run away. That's exactly what Jesus knew these people were seeking for in John 2. They were like friends who were excited by all the stuff that he could do for them. Jesus was a means to their end rather than the glorious end himself. Now, in light of that, there are a few things you and I can learn from this interaction with Jesus and these Jews. You guys still with me? Yeah. A few things I want to point out that we can learn from this, takeaways. Number one, when it comes to making disciples, Jesus is not after numbers for numbers' sake. When it comes to making disciples, Jesus is not after numbers for numbers' sake. You know, contrary to popular ideas about Jesus, he does not receive willy-nilly any and everyone who comes and makes a profession of faith in him. If we learn anything from Jesus' earthly ministry, we learn that he did not care about trying to get a mass following in great numbers. I think William Barclay said it well when he wrote, it is a great characteristic of Jesus that he did not want followers unless they clearly knew and definitely accepted what was involved in following him. A lot of people have not considered this. They think that because they have made a profession of faith, somehow that binds Jesus to accept that profession of faith. Well, there's news for us here in this passage Jesus is not bound to accept the profession of faith that we make in him. The question that we need to ask is, is the profession of faith I make one that Jesus would say is a legitimate profession of faith? 
Jesus does not play to the expectations of the masses in order to win them over to his cause and to gain this massive following. In fact, in the Gospels, we find Jesus doing just the opposite. You remember in Luke chapter 14, verse 25 and 26, when a large crowd came after Jesus, Jesus turned around to that large crowd and said to them all, if you don't hate mother, father, wife, children, brother, sister, yea, if you don't even hate your own life more than me, if you don't love me more than all of this, Jesus says, you cannot be my disciple. He doesn't turn around them to them and say, good job, guys. Good job, guys. I'm so thankful that you've all chosen to follow me. No, he starts the church shrinkage movement here, right? He turns around to them all and he says, listen, I know that the majority of you don't actually believe in me. And the reason why I know that is because you don't love me supremely above everything else. That's true discipleship. That is the demand of being a follower of Jesus. You have to love him more than anything else in your life, which means you've got to be ready and willing and able by love for him to let go of anything in your life that he may demand of you. If you can't do that, Jesus tells you straightforward, you cannot be his disciple, period. He does not accept our half-hearted measures and devotion. It's all or nothing. He said, you're either for me or you're against me. There's nothing in between. We live in this day of gray where we we want gray areas in everything because that makes us feel comfortable. Where we see things that are true in us and we see things that are false in us and we want to say, you know, there's both of them there. It's kind of like there's good and bad present within me. That gives me a lot of comfort. Well, I don't want to state things too strongly. But beloved, Jesus was not very gray when it came to areas of being his disciple. He was black and white. This is why Jesus withdrew from these Jews in John chapter 2, because he knew that they weren't ready to make the kind of sacrifice that was necessary in order to be his followers. In fact... Jesus knew, because he knew all men by his omniscience, he knew that the more he pushed them towards giving him everything, the more that he struck the nerve of their idols, their heart idols, the more they would hate him and turn away from him. And so he withdrew. Jesus does the same thing over and over again throughout all the gospel accounts. When a large crowd begins following him, he actually seeks to discourage them from following him. You can see this in Mark chapter 1, when a large crowd begins to follow Jesus and he begins telling them the parable of the soils. He's basically turning around and saying, listen, three quarters of you are unbelievers. You may make a profession of faith right now. You may have received some of my word, but eventually you're going to wither up and die. There's a very small section of you that are truly my disciples. John 6, after telling them some very hard things, it says in John 6, 66, as a result of what Jesus said to them, many of his disciples went away and were not willing to follow him anymore. In other words, Jesus was purposefully speaking to this crowd in a way that offended them in order to cause their false faith to come to the surface and expose what was true about them. 
Now, don't get the wrong idea. Jesus did not do this because he was trying to be mean or unloving or because he didn't want any followers. That's not the motivation in Jesus' heart whenever he begins exposing false faith in people. He did it in order to make them understand that the faith they thought they had in him was not a saving faith. And unless they came to realize that, they were never going to repent of their false faith and turn to him in true faith. So rather than being unloving, Jesus was actually being very loving towards them and not letting them end up content in a false, religiously pious, presumptuous faith that one day would land them squarely in hell. Jesus will not affirm false, shallow faith. He will withdraw from it, and he will discourage it at every turn. That brings us to a second point that we learn from this passage. Not only is Jesus not concerned about disciples' numbers for the sake of numbers, but also, secondly, whatever else may be involved in false faith, whatever else may be involved in identifying false faith, false faith will always be marked by a lack of true intimacy with the Lord Jesus Christ. I really want you to listen to this point. Whatever else may be involved in discerning the presence of false faith, this one thing is certain in light of our passage. False faith will always be marked by a lack of true intimacy with the Lord Jesus Christ. When a person has false faith, Jesus will always seem to that person to be a stranger. Jesus will always appear to be some remote idea, maybe even a superstition that they hold on to. But he will never be a living person that we can latch on to by faith. And that's because Jesus will never bless false faith like that. Christ only receives and has fellowship with those who, are, who have genuine faith in him. In other words, he only opens himself up more fully to those who truly believe upon him. The kind of faith that Jesus trusts is a faith that flows from a, a wholehearted devotion towards him. 2 Chronicles 16.9, it says that the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. When Jesus, as Yahweh in the flesh, looked into the hearts of these worshipers in Jerusalem, he did not find that. He did not find the hearts that were completely his. And how did he respond to that? He withdrew. Jesus draws near to those who have hearts that are fully devoted to him. And what does wholehearted devotion to Jesus look like? Well, I think Jesus goes on to describe that in John 14, 21 and 23. When in John 14, 21, Jesus said, He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father and I will love him. In other words, if you truly love Christ, if you have true faith in him, you will devote yourself, first of all, to having his commandments. What does that mean, to have his commandments? Well, it means that you are taking the word of Christ and his teachings and you are storing them up in your heart. 
You are laboring to understand those teachings. You are meditating upon them. You are memorizing them. And then, in true faith, you are being led to keep those commandments in your life. That is, you are sitting down and thinking through practical ways that real, solid discipleship works itself out in your day-to-day existence. It's not some just mere pie-in-the-sky, heartfelt emotion that you feel whenever you become a true disciple of Christ. It's, it's a resolved commitment to devote your life in love to obeying His commandments. And that has teeth on it. That has hands. That has feet. That actually has real, solid, physical, tangible ways that it manifests in your life. So as you read the words of Christ, the commandments of Christ, the expectations of Christ in, your, in, in the Bible, your heart resonates with the reality of those commands. You feel the truthfulness and the weight of them, and you feel by the Holy Spirit within you a desire rise up to give your life over to Christ in light of what he demands. It's not legalism. It's true love. It's saying, Lord, this is what's pleasing to you. I understand what's pleasing to you because you've made it known in your word. And now I want nothing more than to give my life to living for you in light of that. That's the heart of a true disciple. And then you do the hard work of beginning to think through your life, asking yourself, where does the command of Christ come to bear upon these intersections of my life? And how should it inform the way I go about living and walking through my days? That's the kind of wholehearted devotion that Jesus looks for in in those who profess faith in his name. They are, in the words of Galatians 5, 6, they are those who have true faith that is revealed in action, right? Faith working through love. That's true faith. Now I want you to notice in John 14, 21 and 23 as we come to a close, look at what Jesus promises to do for everyone who has faith like that. In John 14, 21, he says, those who love me and keep my commandments, I will love them, my Father will love them, and we will do what? He says, I will come, in verse 21, I will come to him and I will disclose myself to him. What does it mean for Jesus to disclose himself to us? What does that involve? What does that actually look like? Well, the word itself simply means to inform us about him, to make himself known, to reveal himself. And and it carries a sense of making something that was hidden visible. So there's this unveiling of Jesus that he promises to give to everyone who loves him and keeps his commandments. What does that actually look like? I think he describes it a little more fully in John 14, 23, where he says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and we will what? We will make our abode with him. We will make our dwelling place with him. We will draw near and actually abide with him. Jesus does not draw away from true faith, in other words. Jesus draws near to true faith. He leans into it. 
He gives true faith the blessing of greater experiences of his nearness and a fuller personal knowledge of his love and of his glory. For the one who has true faith in Jesus, Jesus will not be some hidden, mysterious, enigmatic person who, who continually seems out of reach and unable to be understood or known. That's not the relationship that Jesus has with his people. Those who have true faith have Jesus drawing near to them and explaining more to them. He's not mysterious and hidden. Now, that's not to say we won't go through seasons of darkness where we can't see his light where we have to rely upon His promises and bear faith and trust, knowing that He who promised is faithful. I'm not saying that. There are times, a dark night of the soul. Isaiah 50, verse 10 speaks about that. What do we do in that dark night of the soul? We continue trusting in the Lord and we rely upon our God. But Jesus' promise here is that those who love Him, those who draw near to Him in faith and keep His commandments, He actually comes to draw near to them too. And that is a mark of true faith. It's like what Jesus promises to the church in Laodicea in Revelation 3.20. He said, Behold, I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come to him and will dine with him. That is, I'll have a meal with him. I will fellowship with him. I'll have communion with that person. And he with me. See, for those who have true faith, those who respond to Jesus' rebukes and His commands and open the door wide without reservation and submit to Jesus' terms, He promises in Revelation 3.20, He will come and He will have fellowship with you. So just as a lack of fellowship with Christ is a mark that a person does not have true faith, even so, experiencing fellowship with Christ is a mark of true faith. So in closing, my friend, which one are you? Does Christ have intimate, real, and genuine fellowship with you? Or does He seem to draw away from you? I know the potential here. I know the potential that this has to make many of you feel very uneasy and to hack your assurance of salvation to pieces. And I'm not intending to do that. But the question remains, which one of these groups of believers are you? Are you the believer that Jesus draws away from? Or are you the believer that Jesus draws near to? After testing and examining yourself to see if you are in the faith, can you confidently say that Christ is in you? Does His being in you, in other words, prove that He has not withdrawn from you? That's the connection between these verses. My friend, I, I beg you, I ask you this morning, I plead with you. I know this sermon could have been preached a thousand times better than it was, but I'm pleading with you this morning. Please don't settle for a faith in Christ that is less than that. Don't settle for a faith in Christ that does not receive the touch of His blessing. Don't convince yourselves that you are a true believer in the Lord Jesus when He never draws near to have fellowship with you. 
Don't be like these people in John 2. If Jesus does not bless the faith that you have by drawing near to you, fellowshipping with you, making His abode with you, then go pound on His gates until He gives you that kind of faith. Don't sit here and say, I don't have that kind of faith. There's nothing I can do about it. No, Jesus says, you need to t- you, if that's you, then you need to take the gates of heaven by storm. You need to pound on those gates until Jesus opens them to you. We don't have that kind of faith and that kind of resolve and that kind of commitment that Jesus wants from us. Those who will rest, those who will stop at nothing until we have wrangled him down and demanded of him that he bless us. Don't settle for a faith that is less than that. Because a faith that is less than that can only be categorized as a false faith. Go seek Him until He cleanses you. Go seek Him until He makes you wholeheartedly His. And then beg that God, by His Holy Spirit, will show you the riches and the glory of Christ and encourage and inflame your faith in Him. May the Lord do that very thing for us all. Would you pray with me? Lord, we can be so easily deceived. The heart is desperately wicked. Deceitful above everything else. Lord, we cannot know our own hearts, our own selves, but we can know you in truth, Lord. And we know that you, you know the heart. You search the heart. You know the mind. Lord, you know where each one of us are this morning. And we see you in this passage withdrawing from those who have a false faith in you. Lord, we don't want to be those who have false faith. So would you please grant us true living faith in you. Those of us who feel that we're in that dark night of the soul, maybe it's been some dark years, God, we pray that you would bring us out of it that you would restore to us the joy of your salvation, that you would give us a greater sense of your light, that we would know this fellowship that you speak of, Lord, again. Those who have never tasted, God, I pray you would awaken them to that reality. Make them understand that they've never tasted and seen that the Lord is good. So many reasons that we could seek you, Lord. We want to seek you in faith and true faith that rests upon you and who you are. Faith that rests upon your blood, Lord Jesus. Faith that rests upon your resurrection. Lord, please help us rest in you as the glorious one. I pray you would do that. And even now, Lord, would you prepare our hearts to come to your table and to worship you in spirit and in truth. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.